On this episode of the Peter Panda Podcast, I reconnect with my old friend and Montana ranch owner, Cameron Kelsey. Located just a few miles outside of Yellowstone National Park, Cameron and his wife own and operate the Nine Quarter Circle Guest Ranch, a world-class and all-around breathtaking private withholding deep in the Montana wilderness. Cameron is about as educated and well-spoken of a young man as you'll find. He shoulders a long family legacy and manages unique relationships with multiple federal and state agencies that he calls neighbors. It's a complex and fascinating existence in some of Montana's most remote and pristine landscapes. So listen up and saddle up. We're riding deep into the world of rural ranching in a modern world with one of the most impressive and capable men I know. Mr. Cameron Kelsey. Okay, can you hear yourself in both ears? I don't know. I'm deaf in my right ear, so I don't... 100% deaf. Well, 20. Or I have 20% hearing. What ha- Why'd you lose that? Basically, a shitload of ear infections. Oh, really? Just built up scar tissue around the hearing bones. From your childhood? Yeah, just excessive hearing and ear ear infections and then i wouldn't say anything to my mom until it was essentially too late my eardrum would burst oh goodness and i think i did that about 75 times until i had so much scar tissue built up around my ear bone that it i had a lot of uh, ear infections as a kid but unlike you i think i probably like wallowed and squalled pretty quick and like it was constantly yeah I never had tubes in my ear. I think that's... I think if I had had tubes, I would have probably saved my hearing. Hmm. But it's just one. Just one, yeah. Well, as long as you can hear yourself in the other one. Yeah, I think uh, I've been looking at getting a, like, it's called a bone-anchored hearing aid, and they'd, like, put it in the skull behind the the, uh, ear there, and then you hear off of your head. So it's like like a surgically permanent... Yeah, they put like essentially, well, now they're doing it with magnets. So they put in the jack with a magnet underneath of the. uh... Do you need to get into this drawer? No, I I don't think so. But I had a a weird. uh... Oh, the envelope. I'm sorry. I thought it was empty. Look at me. I'm just coming in here and disrupting everything. Well, we just moved our whole office over here. So we're trying to get sort of set up. Well, it's a nice office. Got good views. Can't complain about it. Uh, Cameron Kelsey, we're on the nine quarter circle ranch. That's right. Where'd they come up with that? That, that, that's a, that's the ranch name. That's the brand, that's the brand description, the brand name. Yep. So back in the day when people were trying to identify whose cows were whose or horses were whose, people started branding stuff. Yep. How old is that brand? Did y'all invent that brand, or do you uh, do you adopt that brand? Yeah, it kind of stayed with the property. Um, first registered in the 1890s. Yeah. Um, this pro the brand. The brand, um, and then this property it kind of simultaneously was homesteaded in the 1890s. Right here where we are today. Correct. Okay, because there's you've got winter pasture too, but I don't want to get confused with that. We'll just talk about where we are, which is remote piece of private property uh in the middle of the national forest not too far from yellowstone national park it's probably like the most unique piece of private property in southwest montana if you zoom if you zoom out 
and look it's it's one of those things you see on the map and you're like wait what somebody owns a ranch back here yeah it is pretty unique you think it's just like pure wilderness so it's certainly a place that somebody your family has been for a long long time and you haven't left yeah no we're we're pretty stuck here and and enjoy it you know like i say i think it is one of the most spectacular pieces of country it's beautiful you've got a lot of a lot of different opportunities to go out and around and do different things. And What and generation are you, or how long has your family been in Montana? So I'm third generation. My third. grandfather um, started the ranch, or well, he didn't start the ranch, but he started more of the guest ranch side of things. Is this in the, in the 50, 40s? The 40s. Yeah. So quick history on my grandfather. He was born in Illinois uh, and then moved out to Bozeman in his young teens, um, and graduated from, at that time, it was Gallatin High School, and, uh, and then went to Montana College, which is MSU now, but at that time... It the was Bozeman Mon- University. Yeah, yeah, it was Montana College. Uh, went to school there, was in a fraternity, had done um, some fraternity parties and hunting trips, fishing trips up in the Taylor Fork drainage here, and, and learned of this ranch. It was already homesteaded at that point, and this was in like the probably the 30s, 20s or 30s. And then uh, he started working for John Deere and uh, was working- The tractor manufacturer. Yeah, the tractor manufacturer and was at their corporate headquarters in Illinois somewhere. I don't know exactly where it is, but was working there. And then the World War II broke out in uh, like the late 30s. Mm-hmm. And so he, um, I don't know if he was drafted or joined the war voluntarily or, or what happened there, but he ended up going and serving for four years- Really? Uh, in the Army, and he was stationed in Holland as, like, an artillery gunner, I believe. Wow. And don't know much about his uh, military career, but I think he, he made it up to, like, a captain or something like that. Um, but fairly respected person in the military, had a lot of connections and made a lot of um, friendships I, through that. I, I think it's fair to assume that, like, a lot of people probably in his age and demographic and the era probably did end up involved in World War II. Absolutely. It's a very real part of the American history and your families as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, very similar to, like you were saying, a lot of people were involved in that war and a lot of people that survived the war when they came home, they decided that they wanted to do something other than shooting at other people. And, and that's when a lot of these ski resorts and yeah. outdoor recreation really started to kind of blossom and take my, off. My good friend, Randall Williams, uh, He's a doctor of history, and he wrote his uh, is it dissertation when he became a doctor. Yeah, I think so. Uh, his dissertation is on, and I'm going to butcher this, sorry, Randall, but it's something to the tune of like the, ele- the evolution of the American sportsman uh, through the last hundred years. And there's definitely this very real curve of men coming home from World War II and being like, man, I want guy time i want gun time i want to go and that was kind of the birth uh for lack of a better term of like the modern the the hunting camp we think of today absolutely and like my dad took me hunting my grandpa took me hunting like that kind of common story uh, all derived from dudes coming home from world war ii absolutely and i think that was a combination of a, it was similar to what they were doing in the war, but it was obviously you're not shooting at people, you're you're shooting at something different, and and allowed them a, an opportunity to kind of blow off some steam and 
you know, maybe so think after about the, those issues. After the war, yeah, those this no one was talking about PTSD no, at that time. No, absolutely not. And I guarantee you they had it. Well, I suppose maybe hunting wouldn't be a great thing for some of them boys. But, or, I mean, you see it a lot today, even like, you know, these SEALs and stuff that are coming back from, you know, pretty serious combat tours. and, and Join a gun club. They, they go hunting and they yeah. go on pack trips. And, I mean, there's guys all over this country that are ex-military that are running some sort of outdoor program now 100 percent. that i think it helps them you know nature is is a healing power no doubt if anything so so after the war after the war so he came home in 45 Mm -hmm. and uh and through the war he had made some when we when we won the war yeah yeah shout out usa (laughs) back to back back to back world war champs (laughs) Uh, but anyway, he came back, and, and throughout the war, he had always kind of been angling for this sort of ranch. Like, he really – his his passion is horseback riding, hunting, and fishing. And he'd, and he'd been out here was. through his uh, adolescence, adolescence and pre-war. Adolescence and had pre-war. some parties up here and fished and hunted in this area and, hmm. and kind of knew of it. And his one major criteria that he wanted in a ranch was it had to be in an east-west-facing drainage because he wanted good sun all day long. Hmm. And so he started looking at properties, and he really had kind of narrowed it down to this specific ranch. <laughs> what an interesting, uh, you know, demand of property. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It makes a lot it of makes sense. Makes a lot of sense because I do. You see these properties, these lodges that live in a shadow. Yeah, and they they get sun from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and that's it. Yeah, and you're in this big canyon. A slot. Yeah, and you don't get sun very often. You don't get the morning sun to warm things up, and the evening sunsets. And yeah, well, from where I'm sitting, I feel like I can see about. 15 20 miles both east both, and west yeah, both directions and uh and it allows the sun like say you get a nice thing anyway he knew this ranch so he found the owners who was a, it was a family called the butler family and they lived in chicago hmm. and at the time they had they owned basically all of the private land that was up in this area so that they, they had the Seven Eleven ranch which is now elkhorn ranch they had so any any private withholding with was it still national forest everywhere? It was still national forest everywhere, but bought these specific. I think there were five ranches. Okay, the Sun Ranch over in the Madison. Sure. This ranch, the Seven Eleven, which is the Elkhorn. Wow. And the Lone Mountain Ranch, I believe, and then the Diamond J, which is in Jack Creek. And so they owned them all, and they had big herds of cattle, and they would run cows from basically Big Sky to the Idaho border. Wow. And, and just run them all through the mountains here. What a rugged, oh, gosh. rugged era. Tough, tough people. Running cattle is in this hardcore wilderness-esque country. Yeah. Not, but back, you know, back in six, the, 70 yeah. years ago. And so that would, as I recall, they, they acquired this property, and I don't know if they acquired them all at the same time or within a probably a few years of each other, but 1912 is when the Butler family bought this ranch. Okay. And uh, and so they had it from 1912 until 45 when my grandfather came back from the war, and they built the lodge and all of that. And they were they were the ones that kind of pioneered the the dude ranch side of things. The, bring, but, the butlers, the butlers. Gra- yeah, they were okay. So they but were. They started in 12, and they were really just a, a wealthy family that that brought a lot of their friends and family from Chicago area and whatnot. And sure. Was, you know, you'd take the train out and you'd stay the whole summer, and and it was kind of a a little bit different than what we're doing now. 
Um, and, and so when my grandfather came home in 45, he stopped in Chicago and talked to the butlers and said, I want to buy the nine quarter circle from you. And they're like, well, it's not for sale. We're not really looking to get rid of it. And, uh, and so kind of left that. And, and about a year later, they finally reached out to him and like, all right, we'll, we'll sell it to you. No kidding. And so he scraped up as much money as he could come up with and borrowed a bunch of money from people he met in the war and, and whatnot and, and figured out a way to come bought, up with the money to buy the ranch. And, wow. and since And then he started his first season was in 1946. And so when you say season, we're talking about you, you uh, own and operate, and we're talking about a, a functioning guest ranch. Correct. Which some people would call a dude ranch. What does that mean? Why do people say that? So, you know, it, it's an interesting term that the term dude ranch or dude is is somewhat a derogatory term. To the uh, client? To, to the, the client. To the visitor. Yeah. Like, and this it, it dude an, doesn't know anything. Absolutely. And and it was an evolution of most of these were cattle ranches back right. in the day. And then, including this, including this, and and we're struggling. You know, this is a tough place to. So, like, cattle. I guess we'll have these dudes coming so in. So the and way they supplemented their income, hospitality, was, is to bring in some people that wanted to play cowboy, and let them chase the cows mm-hmm. around or do whatever it is they're doing, and and charge them to do it. And yeah. that's kind of the evolution of it. And and so then, oh, as time kind of progressed, people realized that dude ranch is a little derogatory. While we still call it a dude ranch, you know, most people will call it a guest ranch. That's what I, those are the words I chose real carefully there. Um, You know, like say we're we're part of the dude ranch association, Mm -hmm. which there's a hundred different ranches across the West that do very similar activities and and processes. And and we have an association. So we still use the term and and call it a dude ranch. I'm surprised like the woke culture hasn't canceled out, but I don't think they're worried about it. Yeah. And I think it's probably kind of beyond the hump now. Sure. You know, it was I don't know. I guess it's just kind of nostalgic at this oh, point. We're going to call it a guest ranch. Yeah. So it's a beautiful property uh, in the mountains here, just outside of Yellowstone, like I said. And when I look around, I see several cabins, uh, barns, a main lodge. It's obviously uh, a place completely tailored to hospitality and hosting. So what's your sum- what's your business here? Yeah, so, uh, and you're right, it is completely catered to hospitality at this point. Like, we don't own a single cow. We don't run any cattle at this at this ranch. You do own a shitload of horses. We have I a wanna, bunch of horses. I want, and a particular breed of horses yeah. I want to talk about, but stick to what we're doing. Yeah, so, uh, you know, an average, you know, for our season, we run mid-June through mid-September for the guest season. And then we have staff come on about a month early, and they stay about a month later. So our staff come in mid-May. And then depart mid-October. Fun fact, I once was a staff member here. You were, about 15 years ago. <laughs> Circa 2008 or 9. 8 or 9. Yeah, we, we nailed down the the group photo yeah. in the mess hall down there, which was really funny. Quite a throwback. So our, our guests, uh, if you were to come and, and join us, we run on a week program. People check in on a Sunday, and then they stay the full week, check out on the following Saturday. And, uh, and our main activities are horseback riding and fly fishing. Uh, mm-hmm. We generally cater towards families, you know, kids with or young kids and anywhere from, 
three or four up to, you know, 18, 19 years old. So people kind of have like family reunion type powwows out here. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we got a family of 30 plus here Holy right smokes. now. And it's got, you know, the matriarch and patriarch and they have three or four kids. That's and then so their awesome. Kids, they all have kids and, and it just kind of multiplies. And, and they're, they're coming out for a week of summer vacation to play in the mountains on a ranch in Montana. Yep. I was thinking about this driving in uh, and... It might, you might, this might piss you off. Uh, you're the closest thing I know to a John Dutton. If you watch the stupid show Yellowstone, which I actually refused to watch for years. Um, and there's a lot of, a lot of politics behind the average Montanans opinion of that show. Um, long and short of it is the average Montanan sees the show Yellowstone as kind of like causing the problem that the show advocates against. And so I never really watched it that much until recently. I went and binged it. I was like, every, we were in North Carolina fishing and people on the fishing charter were like, oh, you're from Montana. And then like made some references to the show. And I was like, what? And it really bothered me. Yeah, you're like, like, I don't know what they're talking these about. These, like, pop culture references. I'm like, yeah, it's filmed, you know, in western Montana. And I didn't know what they were talking about. So I went and watched it all. It's a good show. It's entertainment. It's good entertainment. It, it's good entertainment. It is so hypocritical. Because I believe that show drew so much attention to Montana particularly timed with covid and stuff montana was very glamorized and i think a lot of money and a lot of non-residents maybe from the west coast of the continent really decided they liked montana anyways we don't want to talk about the show anymore you're pretty much john dutton to me <laughs> just <laughs> I don't like know just like I the herd boat you're like the land the ranch the ranch is all that matters <laughs> protect the ranch at all costs <laughs> it's like and there's definitely an element of that you know there's a lot of pressure for a property like this to either go back to national forest or go into some wealthy, wealthy family that becomes a private in holding or, or anything. You yeah. Know, it's easy. It's easy to look around here and say, you don't have any neighbors, but you do. Yeah. You got, I'm you, Sam. you got to be neighbors with, uh, the forest service. You got a neighbor, not so far away. The national park service. Who else do you deal with? The state of Montana. The state of Montana. BLM. You got BLM you know, around not here. Not here, but at our winter pasture. Your winter pasture. And stuff like that. Um, yeah, I mean, we basically deal and or have permits with every, every federal agency and state agency. State of Montana lands, uh, Montana Board of Outfitters. Yeah, so from that regard. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different. You got places. all the neighbors. You got the worst. I got Maybe, I don't the, know biggest neighbors. the biggest neighbors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Which, which, which is... It's part of your story. It's, it's part of the story, and it and it's it's a give and take, and it's not you know I wouldn't say that those relationships are all negative or all positive. You know, there's a a balance act in all of that. We we recently visited a week or two here, and we're catching up. And I remember leaving here thinking we had spoke about some of your relationships with those different agencies, and I was uh my takeaway from our conversations was. I was impressed by you and how open-minded you were about it and the give and take part of it. I think it would be easy to 
be the grumpy mean old guy that's got his boot in the dirt and ain't gonna help ain't and that's not your opinion and with you coexist there's a symbiotic relationship going on with all the stakeholders out here maybe not always no, good I, or I think you're you're right in that sense and and that's a product of three generations of dealing with it and and if i had to say any one person was the old man that put his foot in the ground it was my grandfather and who stood up for the ranch any and at that time and in that era a lot of these things were developing like the forest service was very new concept so they wanted your dirt here and they and like or like the board of outfitters didn't even really exist until the 60s i think or or fit maybe late 50s and my grandpa had been doing hunting since before that so like he really didn't like they, all they this kind stuff's of came, evolving yeah they kind of came and said hey now you have to have a license to hunt and he's like what do you mean i've been hunting for 15 years man there's so many parallels yeah. i mean before us there were other people and yeah. before those people there were other animals yeah. and like this the transition of power through these through these places yeah. and times. And I think, you know, I, I've watched, you know, my grandfather and now my, and then my dad kind of deal with all of these issues that, that come up and some of them you ask for and some of them, they just kind of fall in your lap, just given your location or your proximity to things or whatever. Yeah. And I've just watched that evolution and, and I, you see these grumpy old men come into meetings or come to something, some new change and they just resist and resist, and they end up losing because the government can just outlast you. I mean, if it's not the guy you're working with, in 15 years they'll replace him and somebody else will pick it up, and they can essentially just outlast you. So you've, and you've so got a more contemporary you have view to, of You this. have to – to me, you have to find that middle ground, and if you come in and say my way or the highway – Good luck, buddy. Good luck. Like they're not going to – they're not going to work with you. Yeah. And, and so, and if you're the grumpy old man, then they're definitely not even, they're not even going to approach you yeah. to even see like, Hey, we're thinking about doing this. How would you take it? And, and now I feel like I'm in that position where they're like, we, be partners we have a, things. we have a good connection or inner or relationship with Cameron. Let's go approach him and see what his take is. Yeah. And, and I, and I like say, I, I end up having relationships and conversations that I don't think a lot of people would have if they just kind of had that closed door. Yeah. I mentality. like it. Well, good on you. I think that, uh, those relationships being able to communicate with one another is definitely going to be more productive and beneficial to all parties. When stakeholders respect one another, you're probably going to get your closest thing to a good outcome. Yeah. And I've been involved in enough boards and, and, you know, panels and things that you you learn that you're not always going to get it a hundred percent your way. And wait, and what? You, and you, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was told. Uh, and so you get, you know, you, you got to kind of go in and say, Hey, these are the, the three things that I'm not willing to budge on. And these are the five things that it's like, I care, but I don't care that much. That's yeah, like marriage counseling yeah. or something. And, and you kind of, you know, you know, <laughs> this is where I'm going to hold the ground and I'm not going to give in on, but I'm willing to give on this. And they have that same mentality and you, you end up striking a. Everybody's got cards to play. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, okay. Well, uh, deviate from that a little bit. Uh, when I worked here years ago, when we became friends, uh, your father and your mother were the, were the herd bulls around here. Sure. Um, since then you 
and your now since wife mm-hmm. uh, bought the ranch from your your parents. Yep. Yeah. So uh, you know that was kind of always the the goal or the plan is yep. that, uh, to, to to continue the ranch and, and hand it down to the next generation and and keep it going. And you had an interest in it. Absolutely. For, for yeah. I remember. You know, you've got a, an older brother, I remember, and a, a sister. And your sister. And you were always kind of the type to be like, I'll take the, I'll, I'll, I'll commit to the ranch life. Yeah. Long term. And, and, you know, my parents kind of disagree with me now, but I, I distinctly remember as a, as a child, them saying, if one of you wants to take over the ranch, one of you can, but we're not splitting this three ways. Smart people. We're not like that, you know, they've watched hundreds of ranch smart people get fractured and broken and and they never they don't make it because you get down to a small enough piece of property and it's no longer you lost it all yeah it's never going to be glued back together exactly and uh and so that was always kind of in my mind and i think that was the same for my my siblings um and one of the large determining factors of wanting to stay here is the love of horses and and unfortunately your love of horses unfortunately all three children my brother sister and i are all allergic to horses what and how backwards that seems i mean we have 120 horses and uh and it uh you know they just we were always sneezing and hacking and gagging and and having an issue Well, what the heck was your mom and dad allergic my dad was and uh, and we all got it what an inconvenience yeah and so that played a huge role in my brother and my sister's love of horses they were like they don't love them at a young age at a young age because they're sneezing and hives and and just miserable while they're riding these horses and i was too but you you got but i was just just stubborn or i i liked it i liked riding horses i liked being out in the mountains you still do i still do and and so from you know six years old everybody that was coming here is like oh cameron's gonna be the one taking over the ranch yeah i know when i worked here that was like the uh, that was the vibe it yeah. was kind of it was it was kind of known that you someday you were gonna settle down here and this is home this is home yesterday this is gonna be home tomorrow yeah yeah and so I I went away for a few years went to college and you know had some fun and traveled and did some things and <laughs> no and, kidding uh you know and then ultimately I came back in 2012 and uh, and I've been working here full time you know managing running the ranch uh and so then, you left after i was here mm-hmm. well yeah so when you were here i was in college and i would I come too, back yeah. from or for the summers and work the summers and then uh, would go back and then i ended up spending a summer in alaska and a summer in australia and, oh wow and you know kind of traveled around and did some things that i wanted to do and check some boxes and, and yeah. that sort of thing and then when i graduated did another big trip down to South America and, and traveled around, and then I came back, and I've Damn. been here full time since uh, 2012. And when did you get married, and when did you start your own family? If you if talk about yeah, that as much so, as you want, like say I was here at the ranch uh, starting in you know 2012, and and really just kind of for the the let the, the next five years. That's not a fair. <laughs> you were at the ranch before 2012. Yes, I grew up here. I, I worked back. every summer. You came you know, back full time. Full time, I guess, is what I mean. And I was here throughout the winter and and operating things. And and over the next five or so years, my my parents just kind of slowly handed things over in, in terms of management and hiring staff and all the different pieces of this puzzle. 
And then uh, really they, they wanted me to have a partner because it's a big enough business that it takes multiple people yeah, and multiple not gonna, captains. You can do this or, on your own. Yeah, it's not a one-man ship. And, uh, and so they really wanted me to have a partner to help do that. And then uh, Preferably I, a, a wife. A wife. Mother to your children. Yeah. And, uh, and so I met Sally in 2016, I think. Uh, and then we moved pretty quickly. Uh, we, we both were, you know, a little bit older in our early thirties or maybe late twenties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and like say, she was working for conservation down in Bozeman and, and, uh, you know, helping promote and protect wilderness with hmm. capital W, um, capital in the state of w. Montana. So she worked for the Montana wilderness association. It's now called uh, Montana wild, I believe. Okay. And uh, nonprofit nonprofit conservation group that was, you know, promoting and advocating for wilderness Um, and kind of a funny story. The Montana Wilderness Association was founded here at this ranch in 1958 with my grandfather. Well, like around a campfire at the lodge. Yes. The first meeting took place in the lodge here with my grandfather. What's their mission? And they were trying to designate the Lee Metcalf. Lee Metcalf. It wasn't a wilderness. It was not a wilderness. And uh, and so my grandfather was very instrumental in getting that designated wilderness. And that's a pitch to the feds. Mm -hmm. That's an act of Congress. That's an act of Congress. To get that through. Wow. And a uh, huge deal. Yeah. If you're not familiar with wilderness, uh, let's just speak to wilderness real quick. The difference between uh, a forest service, which we think of as like our public lands, our public ground, and wilderness. Wilderness is still our public land. Still national forest land. Still national forest land, but it's got uh, a strict blanket on top of it that says you can never mess this one up. You can't bring motorized anything in here from a chainsaw to a dirt bike. It's basically mechanized. So in theory, you're not even supposed to have like a block and tackle, like pulleys and get ropes. out of here. Like it, it gets down to like, it's, if it's a mechanized and gives you a mechanical advantage, you're supposed to be a raw mammal. Like you're supposed to be on your feet, your horse feet or, or, or your foot. horse. Yeah. Horse feet or foot feet, and that's the only mode of travel. So it's wilderness it's area. It's wilderness, you know. And do you know any wilderness stats like across the country? Like how how much wilderness do we have? Or like very what? little. Very little. Very little. I think I want to say uh, I, I want to say less than two percent of forest of national forests. Two percent sticks out in my mind. I don't know if it's two percent of the country or two percent of the national forest, but it's pretty small. It's a it's the it's the in between. Between uh, area of national park and national forest. Yep. It's like the, the middle ground yeah. between those two. It's technically national forest lands managed slightly stricter than the general national so forest. So your grandfather helped create the current wilderness next to us here. Yep. Yeah, it's just up here in the peaks behind us. Um, and there's actually three portions of the Lee Metcalf. There's yep. the, the Taylor Hill Guard unit, the Sage Peak unit, which is kind of back here to the southwest or southeast of us, and then the uh, Spanish Peaks unit. And they're not contiguous. They're not contiguous. And, and part of that was because of the way the lands were broken up initially. And, hmm. and I'm sure you know a lot about the, like the corner crossing checkerboarding yeah. issue. When they gave out the lands in the 1800s, it was all given to the railroads, and it, they didn't want to give them large contigu- contiguous blocks. So they checkerboarded. So they it. gave them every other section, and throughout this whole what a range, mess that made for everybody. And at the time, it kind of made sense, but now it's created a bunch of issues, in sure. corner crossings, and all these other things that have come up. 
Um, but because of that, a lot of this area was checkerboarded and a lot of it still hmm. was held by railroads when that wilderness was put in. They weren't doing anything with it. They'd already logged it back in the turn of the century, but they kind of held on to the lands. Hmm. And so when they were making the wilderness, they couldn't just require people to sell their land or turn it into wilderness. So they kind of had to do these little islands of areas that. But there's not railroad withholdings around me today. No, so that, but that, that that's taken, again, it, all of this stuff takes a lot of time and it's, it's a very We're talking about 150 years. Yeah, time span. And, and there was a big land swap yeah. and that happened that essentially created Big Sky that, that facilitated us now having all public lands. Wow. And that was another thing that our family was involved in and, and really... Like I say, it kind of created Big Sky, but there was this checkerboarding that went all across these mountains from the West Fork to the Taylor Fork. And I, I, I might have the stats wrong, and somebody will correct me on this, but I think there was like 18 sections of okay. privately held land in the Taylor Fork. I can picture that. And they traded 18 sections of publicly held land in the West Fork. And the West made, Fork of the Gallatin River. Which is, which is where Big Sky Ski Resort and, West Yell and, and uh, Yellowstone, Yellowstone Club, Club yeah. and all of that is. And, and again, that was, you know, a, a big mm. move for, for not only the general public, but for this valley and, and, and Big Sky as well. Because Big Sky had already been formed as a ski resort, but it was not, it was not what it is today. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and there wasn't private lands all around the meadow village and all of that that they could develop because it was all checkerboarded. And so they took this land and they swapped them and it essentially made the West Fork almost all private right. and the Taylor Fork all public, mm -hmm. which was a great move for us, I think, because we are now you not surrounded by houses. You don't have a bunch of million dollar homes perched on every single ridge. Yeah. yeah. Well, this seems like a bit of destiny because all of that happened, which led your now wife to working for a conservation group to help protect such a thing yeah yeah so how'd you mean and that? so we met through a conversation that was uh actually talking about the gallatin national forest they were going through a forest plan revision which they just recently kind of wrapped up here it's a generally a four to five year process and uh and the forest plan is essentially the 40-year management plan for the forest where are they headed what kind of activities and resources and and things are they going to utilize and use on the forest yeah and the last plan was created in the 80s and so it was kind of time it's to, a playbook they're going to yeah, write a playbook for the next four 40 decades years. Yeah. yeah 30 to 40 years and so that was happening and a bunch of businesses and associations and organizations and ngos from the bozeman community kind of got together proactively said hey we should come together as a community and list our demands. Let's let let's let's show what we want. Yeah. Let's tell them what we want so that they kind of know instead of them coming in and saying, "Hey, this is how it's going to be." Right. And uh, and so I was kind of brought in as a, a guest ranch advocate and and the kind of spokesperson for the guest ranches. And Sally was representing wilderness, and we had mountain bikers and loggers and mining and. Hey, you got all these players. You got at all the table. these players at the table. And kind of sat down and, and met, I think it was like bi-week or twice a month or something. We'd meet for a couple hours and we'd collaborate and say, hey, I really want, the, you know, the wilderness people would say, this really has to be wilderness. And I'd say, hey, we really have to keep this horseback 
use here. And the dirt bikers would say, we really want this trail over here. And, and the loggers would say, we really want to mine our log up in this area. It sounds like the UN. Or oh, it's, yeah. It's yeah. Like... But this, again, it's it's pretty big, but it's not national scale by any means. It's huh. just the local Gallatin National Forest. And uh, and so really, that we, we put this plan together, and it was called the Gallatin Forest Partnership. And, uh, and, and they, and it's like, is a suggestion book Yeah, you hand it over to the forest service. Yeah. And so because it's a federally managed lands, there's a public democratic process where general public can comment and can provide suggestions or feedback or, or whatever. And, and it's a lot more powerful when you come and say, Hey, I've got 50 groups mm-hmm. that all back this plan. Versus me coming and saying, hey, I'm a dude rancher and this is my plan. Yeah. And and so we came together, we got this plan formed and presented it, and it was actually the plan that was selected. And so I they, think like- They ran 90, with it. They took it. Yeah, 95% of what we suggested was accepted and so at is the, the new forest plan. So it was extremely successful. And at the celebratory party, you you- proposed to your wife yeah, darn near I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean we we met early on in the meetings and and uh kind of hit it off and you know we actually kind of we, we met at a meeting and then we bumped into each other randomly at a at a, a run to the pub and oh. uh the uh the old saint patrick's, saint day, patrick's day run, run to the pub and uh i was down there because my brother's wife was running it and mm. he wanted somebody to hang out at the bar at the finish <laughs> line and i wasn't going to run the race <laughs> And my wife was running, and or well, wife now, but yeah. uh, anyway, and, and we just happened to cross paths and kind of hit it off and, and went from there and, and then ultimately got married about a year later, and, and then we bought the ranch about a year later from there, and then we had a kid about a year later from there and had another kid about two years after that. and Wonderful. And now we've got two young kids in a ranch and I love it. running it. So. it. It's so cool to see the the evolution of – you know where things have gone in the last 14 years since i was pissing around here yeah being the chorman when i worked here my job i believe my job title your father kim called me the chorman choreman yep which basically meant like bitch boy yeah bitch of the ranch yeah yeah like hey the horses broke that fence you have to go fix that fence hey the trash. You got to go burn. Yeah. It was a lot of trash, a lot burning, of trash. a lot of dump runs, and like, hey, these guests need to get from the airport to the ranch or to the ranch from the air to the airport. So I did a lot of that. Yeah. And I lived in a little cabin down the hill there, and uh, it's so crazy. It's crazy to me driving back in and passing that same cabin and seeing some young, some young man sit on the porch out there who's obviously your hired hand for the summer, and I'm yeah. like, man. The stories that all of us could tell. Yeah. So it's it's, it's funny. We kind of watched the evolution of that title, chore man. And uh, like say, I, when I hire somebody, I still call them the chore man. And when they introduce themselves, like, oh, no, I'm in the maintenance crew. Oh, they, I would they, I would take chorman over they, maintenance. Yeah. They're like, they think that that's like a derogatory really? term. And I'm like. Oh, I think chorman makes you sound like you can do anything. Anything. You know, I don't know, but it's funny. They're like they'll introduce you themselves. Got a I'm part of the maintenance crew, and it's like, okay. Wow, that's an interesting perspective because I would not agree with that. I would rather be the the ranch chorman than the maintenance guy. Yeah, but even anyway, though we do the same, thing. you do the same thing. It's <laughs> yeah. like you're the one that needs to I take dug, out trash. Or I dug some or... some ditches for plumbing. You know, I I did all sorts of stuff. Y'all were building. Uh, 
cabin the, up the, the 20 there. the yeah. section 25 uh cabin we did that for a while but it was an incredible summer i spent here uh i fell in love with this place and in the years following working here i spent a lot of time up here hunting and still going to college in bozeman and uh just life kind of takes you in different directions at different times and i don't know there was an eight eight ten year hiatus where i wasn't regularly spending time down here sure and just kind of recently in the last year introducing my wife to the area and places i had worked before have kind of re-fallen in love with the drainage and uh in doing so reconnected with you and your family got to meet your family and stuff and it's so cool to see to see what's going on here so how far along are you in your summer schedule right now so it is about first of august now not quite but uh yeah so we got another month and a half to when did you start uh 15th or we usually start around the 15th of june so i think this year was whatever sunday is the closest to the 15th Mm -hmm. so the 18th i think is when we started this year so we're in our sixth or seventh week out of i think seven 16 weeks is what we're open for yeah pretty short time frame of of being open for clients Uh, that's really make hay while the sun is shining yep that's that's the expression that I use almost daily. And like I say, I mean, we, we know our weather window. You, you open much earlier than the 15th of June. You're going to be fighting rain and mud. And oh, just, well, speak to the winter here. Y'all yeah. get buried. I mean, no, this is good. this is the, the, the Arctic tundra up here. And, you know, if you were to come to this ranch in February. It's a very different You might place. as well be on the surface of the moon. I mean, yeah. there's no deer or elk live no they all migrate out i mean we sit at seven thousand feet here in elevation pretty high so pretty high and everything is going up around us so seven thousand is the low spot and and you go up to eleven three or so into the peaks and yeah we get four plus five feet of snow on the level and it's it's full-on winter 40 50 below i think 56 below is the coldest i've seen so now your parents used to you know, they had a place in Bozeman where they raised you kid, or y'all went to school and stuff, and you did a bit of back and forth, at yep. least outside of the summertime. Uh, are, are you doing any of that? You're you're full time here. No, we're we uh, so we we're doing a very similar process to my my family or my folks's family, I guess. Uh, we just recently bought a house in Bozeman, um, and nice. so we have a, a place in town, and then we have the ranch. And as our kids, our kids right now are are young and aren't in school. Um, but when they start going to school, uh, we will spend more time in town during the school year and then um, up here in the summer times. Yeah, and, makes sense. Um, tell me about the horses. You know, you spoke to your love of, of horseback riding. Did you – I got so many questions about horses and your history with them. Let's start with the breed of horse that you all have here. How many you psychotically have – and uh, why why that breed and talk, speak to that? Sure, yeah. So we breed, raise, and train Appaloosa horses. Appaloosa. And that breed was in uh, developed by the Nez Pierce Indians, who lived mostly in the Panhandle of Idaho, Montana border area, mm-hmm. and would come down into this area, the Three Forks area, and and uh, Bozeman area occasionally, but really kind of in the the Palouse River drainage is where the name Appaloosa came from. Yeah. Is it was a Spanish interpretation of like a Palouse 
horse from oh i see and and so it became it's a horse from the palouse river from the palouse river tribe is yeah. what they were calling it at the time and that it you know this is back in the 16 right. 1700s so forgive my ignorance but uh horses were, were those brought were they were living wild north america so or did, those, did white of, people bring those here a lot of debate and a lot of contradicting theories on what's native what's not native exactly and uh that you know, argument we can, we can really go down the rabbit hole on the wild horse and mm. the you know that whole act and burrow you know the wild horse and burrow act and and what we're doing with horses and and are they native and or that but let's not go down that rabbit hole did the nez pierce have these horses when lewis and clark came through yes so they, they are the ones lewis and clark are the ones that kind of put the breed on the map really and really like they they the nez pierce are the family or the tribe of indians that essentially saved the lewis and clark expedition on their, on their winter was, crossing they were trying to cross over the Bitterroot right. mountains into right. the locksaw drainage and they stopped them they well they they saved them they, they they essentially they got all the way up to the three forks of the missouri which is just down here in boat outside of bozeman and they waited and they took the jefferson river because the jefferson river was the biggest river at that point the three rivers came together and there was the gallatin the madison the jefferson they surveyed it correctly and they picked the biggest branch of the river mm -hmm. and so they followed the jefferson all the way up and then once it split at the beaverhead big hole ruby they think they took the beaver head. They might have taken the big hole. I don't remember exactly. I have to look at their. But they're going to do this. Uh, they were trying to find the Northwest Passage. Correct. Yeah, and there you're going to hit a wall of mountains at some point. You're going to have to go up and over the Rocky Mountains and then spill off west towards the uh, Atlantic or Pacific Ocean. Um, but they waited till like springtime, right? Yeah, I think. Well. I think they were trying to, if I, I don't remember the exact history and anybody that could read Undaunted Courage or any of those books would, would know better, but I think they were trying to cross in August is when they tried to cross over the Bitterroots mm -hmm. and they essentially went up a draw and they got to the top of the Bitterroots and then they basically were like, holy shit, we don't know where to go and, and whatnot. And I, I believe if I remember the story correctly, Sacagawea what, either was a Nez Pierce or had some connection or knew something or they bumped into some Indians that yeah I, I, my my best recollection of Sacagawea is she obviously was helping them along the way but in three forks they ran into some aggressive Blackfeet I think. Blackfeet and one of them was her brother could be yeah uh, but maybe maybe she was more instrument instrumental later in the passage as well Anyway, they called long, them off the, the long of the story, long of the short of it is that these Indians essentially saved them. They got they they caught them at the top, or they caught them somewhere, and they helped them get them down. And then once they got down into the Oxaw drainage, uh, they started running into more and more of these tri or more and more of these villages, and they all had horses, and they were oh really, and they were very well trained, very sure footed, and horses really knew how to navigate the mountains so they hit a well. whole once they got over the continental divide they hit a whole culture a culture of, of horse of native american uh horse culture horse culture and and they've there's multiple document or multiple times in their journals that they kind of said these horses are the most incredible horses we've ever seen and what makes an incredible horse in and i think it it and that's relative and i, right, I of course. point that out um 
they were really good at traveling this rough, rugged terrain, had a lot of stamina, had a softer hoof, so it helped grab the rock a little bit better. some grip. And, uh, and they also were one of the only tribes that were selectively breeding and, and really oh, actually really? had like honed in on, hey, if I take that stallion and I breed it with this mare, I get an exceptional horse. And they would act- actually actively castrate males, which was like unheard of in hmm. the Native American culture. Like, Why and they'd the be world? like, we don't want that male. We want that male. So let's cut the nuts off of that one. Interesting. And use that one. Because if get you obviously, stud, if you have a stud hurt, going, yeah, pick yeah. pick your uh, pick your bloodline, and 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 so these these white folks, the Lewis and Clark expedition, were just kind of <laughs> blown away that that the what natives done with had developed this breed, and and the other part that was very unique about the breed is their coloration. I was going to say, explain explain to me what an Appaloosa. Or, so I know Appaloosas what it like. have spots generally and not every Appaloosa will always have spots it's it, you know now that we have genetics we can we've kind of figured it out but at the time what did you figure out well there's a there's a gene that that produces Spackles. spots and they call it the LP gene um, and and so you but it's almost have, always on the back half, right? Yeah, well, it's a recessive gene, and it's like they're they're hind quarters. So it tri- like uh, and again, you could get into the nuances of yeah, Appaloosas, yeah. but there are in theory a traditional Appaloosa is going to be a solid front, and it could be brown or red or black. Yeah, and then it will roan into a white butt with like silver dollar sized spots on its rump. Yeah. And then there's obviously there's leopard Appaloosas, which are completely spotted all the way from head to tail. Whoa. Generally, they'll be like white with black spots or brown spots or, or something like that. Well, but I think very flashy. Go- I, mean, I think they're gorgeous. Yeah. I see think- them from a distance and you're like, wow, that's, that's a Appalo- unique horse. And if you know what you're looking and if you at. You know you're looking you at. You see like, one that's from an a mile away. Yeah. But we have, I mean, we're, we're currently, our herd, I think, is at 118 horses. Good God. Which is a lot. And I think of I those. I saw a little colt go by this building when I was outside. Yeah, and of those, there's maybe, I don't know, half of them have spots. The other half are solid. Oh, really? So you can have a solid colored Appaloosa. But you're still participating in this selective breeding today, uh-huh. aren't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so when my grandfather started the ranch, you know, initially he had to buy horses because he didn't have a herd to breed or have anything. So he bought. Got to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere. And so he started buying horses. He really liked the Nez Pierce story and the the history of the Appaloosa horse. Plus, they were very suited to this environment. It was appropriate. It was appropriate, and it had a cool story. And 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 your grandpa so, sounds super cool. Oh, he was a. Did you ever know him? Not really. He, he died when, when I was two years old. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So I didn't I didn't know him well, but I've you know I, I there's guests here this week that that came when he was alive. Really and know him better than I do, and they tell me stories and stories. Oh, it's so and, cool. It's really fascinating, and I wish I could have known him better because he was a he was a man ahead of his time, really. Yeah. And, and really. Well, I believe you're following in his footsteps. Brought a Cameron. lot brought a lot to the table and, and not only tourism in Montana, but horses and, and ranching and just, I mean, he was very involved in politics and all these different things. But, but he, perp- he uh, intentionally sought out the Appaloosa horse to be at his ranch. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and he, he liked that story and, and I could, you know, that anybody could research this, but there's, there's a big story about the Nez Pierce in like the 1870s. The cavalry was, uh, 
basically coming in. They were they were sick of fighting the Indians or the natives. You know, they've been battling them from St. Louis all the way west as they were coming. And again, you could take this story one way or the other, but essentially they wanted to yeah, they wanted to kill pur- them all or put them on area. reservations. Yeah, it's a it's a part of American history. People don't like to talk about. Don't like to talk. But about this it. is what happened. And and so the Nez Pierce kind of knew that was coming, and there was a, a famous chief that that led them, and it was Chief Joseph. Yeah. And they knew the cavalry were coming to get them, and so they did a big run, and they were essentially trying to run to Canada to really? get out of America because they knew the cavalry was coming to get them and put them on a reservation, and so they left the panhandle of Idaho and they started running and it was men, women, and children and all of their horses and all of their camp. The trail of tears. It wasn't the trail of tears, but it's a similar story. The trail of tears was down in the South. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, but uh, anyway, they, they left that area and they basically kind of, they came back over the continental divide. They came through this area. They went through Yellowstone national park and then they started turning North that once they got onto the Eastern side of Yellowstone, just running for their lives, running for their lives. And, and to be fair, they were, Men, women, and children, and their entire belongings outrunning the the US cavalry military that are all men, you know, twenty to thirty year old men on fresh horses, on, you know, and they were just kicking their ass and outrunning oh. them and outcompeting, you know, just and they made it all the way. To, they were about forty miles short of the border, and they caught them, and they just got annihilated. Yeah, killed a bunch of them, put a le- the rest of them on the reservation, and it essentially wiped out the the herd of horses that they had and Oh my gosh. And really a, a sad sad story of Yeah, genocide. Of, yeah, really it was. And uh and anyway, there are some descendants of that herd that have kind of remained and people have picked up breeding those and and we're one of those But the hor- the horses that were with that group is like the last uh the last blood or I don't know if I would say the last, but that's where the the story there. The yeah, like that goes, you know, and, and obviously, like, say that was in the 1870s. And so you have another 150 years of evolution of selective breeding of yep. Appaloosas. And, you know, we've been breeding our herd for 75 years at this point. That is nuts. And, uh, and so I would say that is definitely one of the more unique aspects of our ranch is that. We raise, we breed them, you we raise them up, we train them here. They live their entire life here, and we raise them solely for taking guests out. Yeah, it's got to be. Uh, are there any other like Appaloosa enthusiasts that like come and see what you got going on here? And they're like, oh my gosh, you have the, you've got the crown jewel of the Appaloosa blood here. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that we get a lot of the Appaloosa, you know, followers. Because they probably have their own Appaloosa horse if they're really into it. You know it. what I'm saying, though? Like, if you zoom out, like, big picture stuff, is there any, like, zoologist or or uh, ecologist that's like, you guys are actually... I think there should be. You guys are actually uh, hosting and promoting this really OG Nez Pierce Appaloosa bloodline. Yeah. And, and, and you know, we've... I, I know I personally have tried to stay with that really like i've started to try to find they call them foundation appaloosas that are like papers yeah they got papered and they're like that's the problem though not they all don't but again and there's people all over the country like there's this lady over in new zealand that has a really impressive appaloosa program there's some people down in colorado there's lots in montana and idaho and washington what a time to be alive but it 
um, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I just actually watched this documentary the other day, and I don't know how much foundation there is on it, but there's kind of an alternate theory. Like currently the most accepted theory is that the the Spanish brought horses to mm-hmm. the Americas. So the, the, the long history is that horses were in America 15,000 years ago, sure. 20,000 years ago, but they were a smaller almost like a donkey kind of breed Hmm. of horse, like a really small horse. There's no question whether the Spanish brought horses to America. They They sure did. did. They did. But there's kind of competing theories and some, some or not necessarily evidence, but basically like if, if you follow that timeline, they brought them over here in the 1560s, and that would have been in like Central America. Yeah, I was gonna say where. So were you're they talking like out? you're talking, you know, what five thousand miles mm-hmm. of land that you have to now move that horse up, and and the Spanish when they brought horses, they weren't bringing them to turn them loose. They were bringing them to use. Right now, over time, some would get loose, or the natives would raid a camp and steal some or whatnot but a lot of these tribes had never seen a horse and never they didn't know what they were but they saw these dudes riding them around and they're like well shit that's a hell of a way to travel why why don't i have one of those yeah and so over time you know horses got loose natives kind of stole some acquired some however it was and and a lot of those tribes down in like texas and arizona became incredible horsemen because they had basically in been involved with the horse a lot longer yeah i mean that's that's popularly accepted today like you talk about like the comanches like yeah. those guys were yeah. incredible horsemen ruthless ruthless uh, ruthless i mean you talk about that have you ever heard they're like spinning wheels of of warriors they'd get like a hundred warriors all on horseback and they do they basically all get in a big circle at a full gallop like tornado it and they would cyclone. just slowly move that circle closer and as they would come around to like the cavalry they would drop off the side of their horse and shoot an arrow under the neck of their horse so that their horse was protecting them oh my gosh and so you know this wheel is just going and every 10 seconds an arrow is coming because the oh. next rider is coming and they would just do this spinning wheel of arrows that's incredible. Is, I, I can't imagine that coming at you. Yeah, you would be. I mean, and you're you're one to speak to uh, being impressed by that. So, what was your history? Obviously, you're born into this ranch life here. You're born into the, this Appaloosa, uh, you know, heritage here. Uh, what was your introduction with horses besides being allergic to them? <laughs> and did you get over it? You take some like clarity? at this point, I don't. I don't have any issues. Yeah, I can't um, believe you can. Not, not that I want to, don't answer that, but do you want me to finish the, the, the competing theory? Yes, I do. Sorry. Okay. Uh, so anyway, Spanish in theory brought the horses in the 1500s, but by the time Lewis and Clark got to the Nez Pierce and saw their horse herd, that was in 1805, 1804, six, somewhere in there. That's only like a 250 year window. And for a, a, tr- an, a culture a nomadic culture that had never seen a horse to now becoming an exceptional horse breeding program tribe is almost like in the northwest yeah in the northwest of of america it hmm. it kind of brings to the question like is that even possible to well maybe it's a hybrid maybe it's like they got one or two of them from the spaniards 
and and you know. So let me tell you the with, competing theory. That the, the competing theory is that is that essentially Vikings. Oh. Either around the same time, or maybe a little bit before, a little bit after, but around you know similar fifteen-ish, you maybe came over the Alaska land bridge. Yeah. From you know Russia and, and into Kamchatka. that area, and came came through that area, and so they got these horses a lot quicker. Instead of coming from ah. se- from Central America up, they came from Alaska down, mm-hmm. and and so they're, they're like I said, I just watched this documentary and. Now that they have genetic testing, they could start pulling blood and hair and stuff. And they went to Kazakhstan in like the middle of Asia. Yeah. And out there, there's some nomadic tribes in that still run grazing herds, and they, they got, got damn Appaloosa spotted ass horses. No over there. way. Like, re- like I mean, they well, look that, identical to our horses. Well, that seems striped kind hooves. Of, uh, they got black spots. To they me. got you know all this stuff, and it's like maybe the Spanish. Didn't you know? I think the Spanish did bring horses, but maybe the, those horses aren't the horses that That's they got. Interesting. And and again, I'm not a genetics. I'm not a. I just yeah, watched you the sold, show. <laughs> you and, sold it to me, man. But I think that make possible. that adds up. It, it, I think it's possible. That's that's really interesting. And so I think you know, in the next fifty years, you might see some some different theories come mm-hmm. out that are that are going to be more founded in fact than than theory about this evolution of horses whatever the origin the breed of horse that you have spent your whole life with the appaloosa is it's extremely interesting it's a fascinating horse and and it's interesting to me because i think in the the horse culture the appaloosa is kind of like oh you ride an appaloosa like it, it's well, kind of like, like, like a like a, a derogatory thing uh, yeah, and and I don't. I, the only thing that I can come up with is that it was associated with natives. Yes, and anything that natives did was just lesser. lesser. And so they're like, oh, that's an Appaloosa. Like if you if you go to like a horse show yeah, and you yeah. show up with an Appaloosa, they're gonna be like, people are unimpressed. They kind of like roll their eyes, and that's not the thoroughbred yeah. that we brought. And and to be fair. You are never going to have an Appaloosa win the Kentucky Derby. Like, they are not built for speed. That is not what they were designed what are to they? Do. What are they good at? They're good at going through the mountains. They're so good at going I'm, long distances at a walk or a trot. They got endurance? Uh, endurance up and over. I mean, Load like, hauling capability? Load hauling. Very, very sure-footed. Are they uh... – calmer than some other horses so here's where i like uh i don't know anything about this camera and i'm super comfortable admitting that to you but i know that it's popularly accepted that uh mules are like the best of all the worlds like they're calm they're strong they're sure-footed yeah the uh, problem with a mule is it's a dead end you get a great mule to explain that so so a mule is a cross between a horse and a donkey mm-hmm. and they're essentially sterile so they, you can yeah. you can have a mule and it could be the best mule in the world, but you can't breed that and continue that genetics down. Would you say that like the Appaloosa is like the horse equivalent of a mule? I mean, is that I a would bold say, I would say that because I like the Appaloosa and yeah. I think they are impressive. And I see fifty guests a week that come here that ride all the time. And they're like, man, my horse would never be able to do this. Do you uh, do you like mules? I do. You yeah, do. they're incredible animals and they're very smart. A mule is smarter than a horse generally yeah so i uh i think uh it's accepted that 
a horse is going to freak out and buck you off and kill you way before a mule does. Yeah. And, I, that, I would, that's very, and that's a very general I, I know, but you know what I'm saying. Yes. Uh, it, but mules can be stubborn, which mm-hmm. can also cause some – like there's times where like you're trying to get up this little rock cliff thing. <laughs> and dude's and feeding. The, and the, man, the mule's like, I'm not going up that. No and matter there, how hard you, and there, you me. can't beat it. You can't drag. <laughs> it. I mean, if it decides it's not going to do it, you're probably not going to make it do it. So that can work against. So you. it can work against you, but generally they're going to be calmer. They're going to be, you know, better. But again, it's a dead end, and that's always been the challenge for us because it's like you get. There's this no great, bloodline. Yeah, you can't continue that mule. You can take that mare and that donkey and breed them again, but they're going to die. But they're going to die at some point, and so it's huh. hard to perpetuate as you continue down the line and we're always thinking years down the line, like, cause we're, we'll breed a horse this year. Mm-hmm. It'll be born next spring. We'll raise it for three years before we even start riding it. And then we'll ride it for probably two to three years before we even put a guest on it. Do you still break Colts? And so, yeah. And so we do this, you know, I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a long-term game. Yeah. You're playing the you're, long game on this one. Yeah. It's not a short-term turnaround. When I worked here, uh, you had a big stud named PJ. Remember him? Yep. Is he oh, still yeah. here? No, he, we sold him. Uh, so, in theory, the, the only horses we buy, and, and that's not totally true. We have a few purchased horses here and there that we've sure. picked up because somebody didn't want the horse anymore or whatever. But anyway, the, really, the only horse we buy is our stallion. And so, every you know 10 to 15 years, depending on the stallion and where his breeding program is at, you – you can't breed his daughter back to him. So we have a set group of say 15 mares genetically like it's this genetic is, yeah you, can't, you, you would can't start go, I mean you could do it and you need to would, recycle through you need to bring new blood in. Yeah. And yeah, so we it's do the same that, problem the Amish have yeah. every once in a while. And so we do that by bringing in a new stud. And so we'll bring in a stud, we'll breed him until his offspring are of breeding age. And, and then, then get a new stud. Then we get rid of him and we get a new stud. Mm-hmm. And there might be periods where we have two studs and we'll bre- be breeding the older stud to the older mares and the new stud to the younger mares. How many colts did fell on the ground this spring? Uh, so we, we had a small year this year, which was not great. We had three this year. So typically we're shooting for four to eight, mm-hmm. depending, you know, just we, we kind of breed what we can. And some, and then some mares take and some do and some don't. And, and, uh, and I've tried to do a little more research on, on this one now and, and between AI, which is artificial insemination, versus yep. live cover, just letting them, them do their thing. Oh, I witnessed some live cover and uh, And it's, you know, I honestly, I would say they're about the same. You know, I get Success a, rate. Yeah, I get about 70% either hmm. way. Um, and, and, huh. so you know, it's you just can like out of your hands. This, you can do this whole thing. And, and now that I, like I say, I've started to get more – scientific i guess about it which really just costs more money <laughs> and you know you can go in and ultrasound them and you can cycle them it's and just do all, all the this, same no which, matter what but it's you like do. you know if, if the semen doesn't meet the egg i don't care how it fancy you, you could you could uh, do all these tests yeah. in the world but until the semen hits the egg you're not going to get a baby and and so you know i've i've found that it's you know it's about the same so did you as a kid did you do any uh rodeoing or were you always just a wrangler working with horse? Did you ever work with cattle? 
you know, I mean, I've done stints at cattle. Like I worked on a cattle station in Australia, and I've you know I've done some cow work, but definitely not. That's not like my bread and butter. Like no. what I know. I, you're I, you're, ho- you're a, horse, a horseman. A horseman, and I train horses. I raise horses. Yeah. Like, like you know, I don't really get involved in cattle at all. Yeah. I eat a steak every once in a while. Love a good ribeye. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so. Yeah, it's more of a horse culture that that I'm involved in and in, in totally. the process. Totally. Um and it and it goes strong today. I mean, I love it. I'm driving down the road coming in here today. I saw a yeah. big group of Appaloosas out in a pasture and I was like, that is beautiful. Yeah, I mean it's it's incredible. Like they say, there's a lot of people that come and, and just, just watching us move the herd is a is a pretty cool sight. Yeah. 15 head of horses running down the road or up through the mountains or wherever it is. It's pretty incredible. Tell me about that. You're, you know, you live in the mountains here in the summertime, but you'll move your entire herd of horses to winter pasture at a much lower elevation in the Gallatin Valley. What, what does that look like? What did it look like? What What do you do today? Yeah, so uh, again, like you were saying, we, we move our horses down in elevation in the wintertime, mostly due to the severity of the climate and, and Yeah, they got to be able to eat. <laughs> they got to be able to eat. And, and, and a horse can pretty effectively eat through snow to a certain degree. If you get more than like 18 inches of snow. Or like an ice layer. Or an ice layer or something like that. Like for them to paw through all of that to get to the grass – it takes more energy yeah. than they're gaining. Right. And so they'll just start losing they're weight. They're just going downhill. Old timers will start dying. I mean, you're just, they're starving to death. Yeah. And so we move our horses to a lower elevation. Our winter pasture sits at like 4,500 as opposed to 7,000. Or, or, yeah, or higher. Or quickly much higher yeah. at the range. And, and so, you know, you get out of our winter pasture, if we get 18 inches of snow, that's a lot of snow for that area. And usually you're probably in the 5 to 10 inch range at the Lum- at the de- height of winter. A lot more wind out there. There's a lot more wind, so it blows it yeah, off. Yeah. Um, it's not as covered in trees. It's basically open rolling grasslands yeah. down there. And, uh, and not to say that it's easy. I mean, I go out there and it's 40 below zero and the wind's blowing and it's cold. It's pretty rugged in its, it's own rugged. way. Yeah. Um, but these horses grow up in this environment and they become accustomed to it very quickly. Kind of like you. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you, you, like you say, it's, if you took a horse from Texas and drove him up here, I bet he wouldn't have a good drop time. Drop him into the, our winter pasture. He's going to have a hell of a time. Yeah. He's not going to be but real happy. When they're born and raised here and they, it's just part of their growing up. I mean, they grow a fat coat in the winter. They have a full on wool coat damn near. Yeah. And, uh, That's and if cool. you don't blanket them and you don't feed them and you don't supplement them and they do grow all their own things, blanket, they, they, they do just fine. Yeah. And, and they've evolved for millions of years doing this. And we've come in and say, Oh, you got to put shoes on them and you got to give them a blanket and you got to give them grain and you got to give them this. And it's like a, everybody gets a trophy culture into the horses. Yeah. And, <laughs> it's and, like, and actually they're pretty tough. They're pretty damn tough. They're pretty damn tough. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, Last so as far as that, you know, moving them, yeah, historically, yeah. so that's about 75 miles from our the, the main guest ranch. Our winter pasture is about 75 miles. And uh, historically, we would push them on horseback all the way. And Would you all follow the river down? We'd follow the highway, yeah, the river yeah. all the way down. And as traffic and 
you know, Big Sky Bozeman are booming now, and the Gallatin Canyon is just wall-to-wall traffic, and it, it's very crazy. It's too dangerous. But in the 1960s. I mean, up until 93 was the last year that we ran Y'all were pushing the 100 horses down the Gallatin yeah. River. And so in the early north. 90s, we stopped because we we had a semi come around the corner yeah. and almost take out the whole herd. And it was just it was yeah, it's yeah. so dangerous yeah. that it was like, this is just. So you'll run them out of. So now we run them about half the distance. Yeah. We run them from the winter pasture to the mouth of the canyon. And then we truck them the last 45 miles or And that's so. got to be just like an economic thing. Like the less trucking you have to do, the and better. Honestly, it's not economics. It's just tradition. Really? It's tradition. And I can appreciate a good tradition. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, it's it, we call it our roundup. We, yeah. we go down there. It's a three-day event. Yeah. We bring all of our staff and, and everybody comes and all of our family and friends come. And, and it's a big kind of party in a sense but we, we've got to get a job done and we've got to move 120 horses 75 miles half of it on horseback half of it in trailers and so it's this big orchestrated event that, yeah. that happens and, and we get them all moved up here and then we go through and we do all the work we need to do to get them ready and then we kind of roll right into our season i was gonna ask you when when do you do most of like your doctoring and your fairing and uh branding yeah so it kind of all takes part throughout the year but our our you know, vaccinating and, and um, shoeing and whatnot happens in the springtime. Like, so right as we're moving them up, mm-hmm. we go through and we vaccinate them, we shoe them, we move them up, uh, and then we reshoe about right now. They're actually setting up today to, to reshoe for the – so we basically shoe them twice. We shoe them in the spring. We go about six weeks. They're, ri- they're riding mountain trails daily for weeks and weeks and weeks and they're gonna throw shoes or need new shoes yeah they, we do pretty good we shoe 100 head and we'll probably lose 15 shoes out of 400 feet do you fare uh i i mean i could put a shoe on i i don't you don't claim do it, to be it. Yeah, that, yeah. like if you if you get into the you horse outsource world that yeah if you get into the horse world you'll learn real quick you don't want to be a farrier i don't want to be a farrier you can break I'm, go back yeah i'm too tall and skinny for that job yeah there's the right guy though yeah you gotta there's be a the short, right, stocky wrestler yeah like an mma wrestler <laughs> be real good at that um but uh when do you brand and then branding we do in the fall particular um, reason or uh mostly just because you know you don't want to take a brand new baby that's just born and throw a hot iron on their hip boy the the cattle ranchers don't have that sympathy yeah and and to be fair well first off cows are pretty darn tough Mm -hmm. like cows are horses are actually thicker skinned thicker skinned and they're yeah i can picture this and and for cows i've branded a calf i have never branded a, a colt and I can imagine it being a lot more violent. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's not e- – and that, that's part of why we do it when they're three months old and not three years old because oh, getting yeah. a three-year-old horse on the You'd ground lose. is like you're gonna, he's going to kick your ass. Yeah, you're going to need some ketamine. You know, so you need – need, and basically we get a rope around them. We get them snubbed down to a post so they can't run away from us, and then we just go in there with like six or seven guys hold and em. just take them down, hold them down put the brand on him and then let him go am i correct in saying that you sport a similar brand i i, I have the same brand yes <laughs> but not old, recommended yeah i i watched it happen cameron were you here that when i that was here oh wow yeah i i can't i can't say that i did it to you but i watched yeah the wranglers and, do it to you and i have i've seen probably 15 to 20 people branded you have and mine's the only one that ever turned out. 
because most people get the iron too hot mm. and they have it too close. Like if you're trying to do too close to what? Like a nine, say, oh. and where like the circle or where like if you were to make that circle, you can't have the pinch point. That pinch point because there's so much heat right there that the scar just kind of blends into a big mass of shit. I remember watching you get branded and just smelling it and thinking you were the craziest and like most hardcore awesome person I'd ever met before. And then it's just so funny to see that damn stupid television show go and go and, uh, you know, make that popular again too. Yeah. Uh, so if you're listening to this, don't brand yourself. Yeah, yeah. I would not recommend don't it. Like, do I it. saw 20 people do it and mine's always went wrong. Yeah. It all, like my brother's looks like a, a ball of shit. Yeah. Yeah, not good. Not good. <laughs> Yours on your thigh. It's it? on my thigh, yeah. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah. Oh, that's but crazy. It was funny the other day my daughter was like, What's that? <laughs> I was like, uh You were nothing. like Don't worry about that. That's our uh what's it called when your family has a a, a shield. Yeah, or like a, a sign. shield or a, a plaque or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um We'll wrap it up here in a second. But two things we're gonna talk about before we do. Um Living with grizzly bears, which we could talk for hours on. Sure. So we won't. But I want to touch on living with grizzly bears. We are in – we're sitting in the center of one of the most healthy interior grizzly bear ecosystems and habitats in North America, right? like dead center of it. Certainly in the lower 48. Yeah, so let's just start there. Um, so as a crow flies, how far away is Yellowstone? What, I'm going to guess eight miles. I would say maybe a little bit less. Is it five, closer? Seven. Yeah. Five to seven. A shot from the hip. Though. Yeah. I mean, not far. You know, pretty darn close. Basically, right at the mouth of the drainage. Um, if you drew a straight line, it'd probably be, yeah, probably five to seven, somewhere in there. So the drain, the Taylor Ford drainage has been home to grizzly bears uh, long, forever. forever. I, would, ever, I would argue. Did they leave for a while when we, when we knocked them back? I don't think so. You don't think so? I, I think we have had grizzly bears throughout my grandfather father and my generations like we've always been dealing with them there may have been less in the 70s yeah so when was the era of uh, extermination oh i mean i think it started in the early 1900s well i think it started in like lewis and clark's era 18s 1800s like when they were coming through this area they had multiple encounters oh they were getting messed up by grizzly bears out in like miles city yeah and like great falls and yeah all over the place like i mean the, the bears were really a plains animal right and they um, thrive in the mountains today because we pushed them in there especially. and it's similar with elk like sure were sure. there elk in the mountains back in Lewis and clark day probably not all of them but not all of them most <laughs> of them were down in missouri and nebraska and in kansas and stuff like they were out yeah. in the plains and if you look at their hide it's indicative of it's, their it's tan it's tan for the tan grass in the huh. in the in the met you know out in the open i didn't think about that. and now they're all what i hunt and what i chase are mountain elk yeah that live a hundred percent of the time in the el- in the mountains they might go <laughs> between to the seven and eleven thousand yeah feet, most 90 percent of the time you know and and so they've evolved and, and adapted to that environment and i think that they were there but they came there in august in july yeah they weren't spending the so that's winter where the, the good the grass was yeah. they migrate all the way back out into the plains in the winter time but the grizzly bear 
was a plains uh omnivore primarily and then white man shows up we start shooting a bunch of grizzly bears we push them into the mountains primarily uh yellowstone national park becomes one of their last strongholds this last beacon of like native grizzly bears and then we you know we were trying to exterminate yeah just similar to the wolf i mean correct but we successfully exterminated we we successfully exterminated the wolf and we successfully exterminated the grizzly across 90 percent of their home range but right here was but right here was their one core didn't get them all didn't get them all and and really what what saved it was yellowstone park and that was, you know, in the 18, what, 70s, mm-hmm. 90s, somewhere in there, you know, pretty early on. And and so it was kind of like, all right, that place is off limits. And and so they they kept going and, and had a little population there. And I think in the 70s is probably the low point, 1970s. Yeah. And that's when, like, the Craigheads and, and these, these – What's that? So the Craigheads are a family that they kind of – pioneered and spearheaded the the grizzly bear recovery and oh. research of them and they were very involved in the park and and helping kind of facilitate the recovery of grizzly bears and a lot of that started in the 70s with the endangered species act and and kind of protection around them and all that and uh, and so since then since 70- so when were they declared endangered i think it's 75 think. the interior grizzly bear was so the state was hunting them up until I think seventy three. If I, again somebody's got to correct me on. No, that. it's it's fine. Loose loosely though, like seventy into the seventies. Like I I talked to a guy here last year that in seventy three had a Montana grizzly, grizzly bear. bear tag. Wow. In nineteen seventy three, and I think by seventy five they were under protection, and since then there's been a lot of effort to kind of refoster that growth and and. Really, the ultimate goal at this point is to get connection between the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and the northern continental divide ecosystem, which is up in Glacier National Park and the right. Canadian border area. So there's a large stronghold of bears up there. Because that would be a habitat win for these two genetically different populations of bears to be able to uh, Yeah, because they're, they're worried about uh, – what is, I can't think of the term – genetic – it's kind of like what happened to I think the it's wolves kind of, in uh, what's that island park out in Michigan? Yeah, Royale. Yeah, Royale. Island Royale. Al Royale. Yeah, something they, like they, that. They basically get to a genetic bottleneck where there's such few genetics. There's only like two males and two females that are breeding, and they end up kind of inbreeding. Yeah, and, and so they maybe need makes, outside bears. You know what's funny about that whole bottleneck is it's not all that's not always true, and maybe it's because bears kill each other and the dominant bear is the only one breeding for a while but there are deer introduced deer populations i'm thinking particularly of these sika deer in north carolina that uh started from seven 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 animals and now there's thousands thousands how did that one not go wrong and and i don't know i don't know that case and i I don't know if i think we just solved it i think it's because deer have a bunch of babies and deer breed with a a bunch of deers and, and uh bears there might be one like one dominant, one dominant bear male. that just like, hey, hey I'm in I charge kill here. I kill everything, and mine survive. And, and maybe that's it. I think it's probably species dependent. Like yeah. there are certain species like deer that need diver- less that diversity. Less diversity. And honestly, 
I'm not a geneticist again. I don't know this, but I know that's their goal. Yeah. And and so in 20, I can't think of it. It's like 2018 or 19. I was I I applied and was uh, accepted to the Grizzly Bear Advisory Council you were. for the state of Montana. It was a governor appointed uh, council of citizens that m- were from all over the state. They all had to be Montanans and have some kind of stake in the game. And this is in the the dawn of this is in the era of uh, the Grizzlies are trying to be. Delisted. delisted so we're trying to go from federal protection to state, state management. management yep which and it's going back i mean this is it's a, a long long story. long story long story but i think i think we're we're headed in the right direction and governor bullock the the previous governor for uh for the state of montana kind of saw that coming and and like I say they've tried to delist the grizzlies several times they did and they they keep getting litigated right. by environmental groups right. that find some minute technicality on something that they forgot or neglected to uh, disclose or like something. Y'all honestly, misspelled it, something in clause seven four one a. I mean, honestly, it, it's it's a game. Of course, it it's is. It's a game, and you know they're playing the game. But I do think I, I genuinely believe that in the next fifteen to twenty years, Grizzlies will be delisted. And they will have oh, a gu- state management plan. I guarantee it. So, what's the state? What's the state of the union here right now with the grizzly bears? Plenty of them. M- more than ever. Oh yeah, they continue to grow in population. Continue to expand. Uh, you know, they're seeing bears farther and farther away from yeah. the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. They're seeing bears farther and farther away from the Continental Divide ecosystem. And and they're hoping to have some sort of mingling. It it that may have already been accomplished. Oh, I think it has. Yeah. I think I think we don't know as much as we say we know. Hmm. You know, I think that's there are known knowns and yeah. known unknowns. And, and it, it to be fair, it's it's tough to to monitor that. It's not like you can just go collar every bear. Right. And and or could you afford to do well, that's that? Well, a unique omnivore. If I was a wildlife biologist, in charge of making like big decisions, I wouldn't want to be in charge of predators. It'd be tough. It's I, just you know. like yeah, it's a lot of guessing, a lot of uh, a lot of models, a lot of models. I mean, like, I mean I we think. through that meet through that council that we did. We that was a year long council. We went monthly all across the state. Hmm. Went to different communities from Libby to Bozeman to Red Lodge to Missoula. I mean, we were all over the state in grizzly habitat. Essentially, hearing what the locals had to say and being presented with information by biologists and researchers, and then at the end of it, we kind of came up with a a plan and a theory of what Montanans like. And and again, I don't think we captured everything, mm. but I think you have to. It's like we were talking earlier on. You have to take a a balance of what's you know, what everybody wants and try to find a middle ground. And that's a tough God, thing. that to life, do. man. It's a tough thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. So part of the Endangered Species Act requirements is that if you're going to delist a, an animal, the states that have those animals are going to have to assume the responsibility of managing those animals. And so they're required to put forth a plan of management on how that would happen. And so the state of Montana did it, the state of Idaho did it, the state of Wyoming did it. All a little differently. All a little differently. 
and and I saw Montana's plant because I was on this council. I I I have their regulations for grizzly bear hunting. Wow. That they've already produced for what, what was it twenty twenty two? I think twenty twenty two or twenty twenty one. Yeah. And it was very conservative, honestly. I mean, it was like We're gonna six, shoot six, six bears across the state. And it's like one, I think one or maybe two females, season's closed. Sub quota. Yep. Didn't, Similar didn't. to lions. Or, yeah, or, yeah. Yeah. That's and, a great and, comparison. And very, very conservative. On the flip side, Wyoming kind of opened the floodgates. And, and I, in my opinion, that's kind of what shot this whole thing in the foot. Well, I think that's kind of uh, the the popular understanding of that. And someone in Wyoming will get upset about this. They but, will. Uh, I believe Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming all came forward to the feds with their bear management plan. Said, delist them. We can take this on. We can manage them. Here is our plan. And Wyoming basically said, yeah, they're going to be like coyotes. You could shoot them day or night. Anybody, anywhere, anytime. F these bears. And it's like, I get it, Wyoming. I get it. But come I can you just play along for a minute so play, we can get this shit for, going? For two years and then change your plan. And then do whatever you want. Like, you let's know. get it switched over. Yeah. And and that's my opinion, too. It, 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 you know, and they, they, they had a conservative approach around the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. But basically, as soon as you got outside of the greater Yellowstone, it was like fair game. Shoot them. And, that, and again, that's, a lot of that comes from the cattle industry. The, the the livestock industry. Yeah, it comes from very real people. Real people with real, on the landscape yeah. dealing with it daily. It's hard. You can't dismiss them. And you can't them. argue with that. And right. I deal with that all the time. I'm, you know, if a bear comes into our ranch, yeah, I can call the Forest Service or the Fish and Game and they might come, but really it's my problem. And if it's killing my horses or my cattle or whatever, like it's my problem. Yeah, and, y'all don't live out here. I live out here. This yeah, bear lives out this here. This bear lives out here. And and so again, that that's my opinion on the on the Wyoming thing. But anyway, it got shut down. I think they're. I heard that they're trying to delist again this year. Well, I hope so. Um, and and they'll continue to poke. You know, the for the the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, to be fair, is trying to delist them. Yes, and we just keep giving them it, reasons that to not be able to. Correct. It's just like the wolf. It's, it's the just same. it's very similar to the wolf. And and the wolf got there, and now it's flat out open season. You Gloves can snare off. Them, you can. Ton of at and night, get, and guess what? We still on. have more than ever, and we still have them. Yeah, they're still doing fine. And and the biggest thing that I took away from that that conf or that meeting and committee or whatever you want to call it is that the state of Montana really does want to do the right thing. Like there, no no state is going to be like, okay, we've got this endangered species animal, we've had it on the list for fifty years. Let's delete. Let's them. just kill them all. Like that would be the dumbest thing in the world because you'd go right back on the list and you'd have to go back to federal management. So it's in their best interest to do the right thing. Yeah, we're not stupid. Give them the management. Let them handle it. They're going to do it conservatively. Are a few bears going to get shot? Yeah, there are. A bunch but of they're bears already get shot shooting. every year already. They're already getting shot. The, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service shoots like 100 to 200 bears a year. Across the tri-state region? Yeah. I mean, they're killing them. All over the place I for know. conflict, for predator or uh, livestock mitigation. Sure. They're, they're shooting bears. Yeah, it's interior, no different. Interior grizzly bears are getting killed in higher numbers than people know. Than people know, and it's it's not a lot different than the the California mountain lion thing. God, you know, seventy five. They outlawed mountain lion hunting. They were killing around three hundred cats a year. 
today, they're killing around 300 cats a year. Is that Federal, right? Yeah, but the government. The government's doing it. Instead of collecting money for tags, Man. we're paying federal government to to kill them. Yeah, instead of it being a fundraising avenue, it's an expense. And it's and it's all a political. I know. Psychological. Well, that's game. like the worst case scenario is when when you have uh, sound science and sound wildlife management uh, muddled up with politics. Yeah, I mean Colorado and wolves. Look at what they're doing. Oh, the Other, list is endless. I mean, it's just like. The list is endless. You know, and, and Colorado's asked Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho for wolves. Oh. And they're like, no, dude. You, why? What are you, crazy? Why would you? Why would we give them to you? You're, they're already coming. <laughs> they are. And so yeah, it's they're like, documented down there. You know, again, all of these things get so politically infused that it it no longer is biological information. It's, it's psychological. Well. Or social, and I, guess, and I guess you gotta you gotta play, you know, you gotta read the room, yeah, and you gotta you gotta uh, play your audience, I suppose, to get where you need to be. But you you live at ground zero of this, yeah, and I think that's part of why I was you're, you're, selected for the council, yeah, because you're I, on a short list of uh, private land owners within the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. That have to coexist with these grizzly bears on a day-to-day basis. And, um, again, I feel like it would be really easy for you to be like, kill all the bears. Yeah, it's a problem. But I, it's really encouraging to see you, the new generation, coming into these relationships with these different agencies, having an open mind about it, realizing there's a lot of people at the table here. And there's a lot of bears on the mountain over here and trying to find some middle ground. Middle ground. And, and which is which is an impossible thing to It's tough. Yeah. It, it really is tough. Um and it's interesting too that another takeaway that I, I took from the the Grizzly Council was I, I I still haven't put my finger on it, but I think it's a, a difference of perception in people. And what I'm getting at is that here at this ranch we have had grizzly bears throughout our tenure here at this ranch from my grandfather to my father to myself and so we've always had to have trash stored appropriately we've Mm. always hung our food or or meat when we're out hunting we're always being cautious with our food and our our attractants or maybe not cautious but just like uh, aware uh, aware and yeah, just like a good steward, a good neighbor to them. I mean, we have a, a, a underground bunker that we store our trash in. We have, you know, we do all of these things, and we always have. And I grew up doing it. It was always part of doing things. And so I feel like because of that, we have pretty good bears. They, they respect humans. Hmm. They don't generally want to get in a conflict Will they defend themselves? Absolutely. But we we don't have run-ins with bears that are negative very often. Because you've so actively coexisted, coexisted with, them. with them. And and the flip side is is a lot of people on this, or not a lot, but several of the people on that council were coming from the Rocky Mountain Front area, Shoto, uh, you know, that kind of where the bears are spilling into right yeah, now. Yeah, and that and that's an aggressive 
uh, conflict area. Absolutely. And they're having These bears don't issues. know these people, and these people don't know these bears. And they're and having it's... issues daily. And there's people getting attacked, and there's livestock being killed, and there's interactions daily that are happening. And I, You're a little more marinated. I than don't that. know that it's entire – I think it's partly geographical, like – the, the bears in the Continental Divide ecosystem are coming out of essentially the Bob Marshall Wilderness, right. which is very mountainous and very treed, into the wide open plains. It's almost like they're going back to their, their ex- where they original came from. thing. And, and so when you come out into the plains and you can see a grain silo five miles away mm-hmm. and you know it's full of grain, it's guess like where a magnet. Ba- guess where the bear's going? They're going right for that. Yeah. And, and then you have these farmers and ranchers that haven't coexisted with these animals for more than a few years, and they don't really want to change their practices. So it's a really tense uh, new situation there. Yeah. And you're saying that's not what's going on here. And I think that here we've always had them, so we've yeah. always had to deal with them. And, and it's like if you had a chicken coop here, the bear's going to get it. Up there, they got a chicken coop. The bear's coming to the chicken coop, and it's coming. It's becoming a problem. And like one example is like there was. It's a, like both both parties learning for sure. And and I think it takes some time for sure for everybody to kind of get on board and be like, hey, I'm gonna adjust my practices for my cattle ranch or my grain operation or whatever it is to allow these animals to maybe destroy a little bit and maybe take a little bit, and you got to deal with them and whatnot. And that's a hard adjustment. It's it's not a lot different than the wolf, huh? You know, whereas for us, well, we wolf, didn't have the, the wolf. wolf re showed up quick to quick. a lot of spots, and we were one of the first to be affected by the wolf because they turned them loose in Yellowstone. They were all gone. They were all gone. And then in '95, they brought them back. To brought the park. them back, and by '97, they were here. Were they? And so it's like you know, within a real short time period. Do you remember '97? Do you remember? Uh, I mean, dad, I remember the your wolf dad talking about. Yeah. This would have been a part of your childhood. And and I remember the elk herds. Like when I was a kid, you would see two to three to four hundred elk in herds all through this valley, wintering in this valley. Mm. Not going all the way. Not over. going over to the Madison, not doing these things. And some were, but we would have, you know, the objective for this zone is fifteen hundred elk. We haven't been at fifteen hundred elk since nineteen ninety five. They're, they're moving on. Yeah. And it's not that those elk are all dead. It's right. that they've redistributed across right. the state, and they've gone more from public lands onto private lands. Yeah, and that's created a whole nother diplomatical whole nother. dynamic of uh, private landowners frustrated with, with destruction to their crops and fences. Fences, and it's like, what would you rather have, one or two grizzly bears or 400 elk? And yeah. if you're a cattle rancher – you don't want the 400 elk because mm. they're eating all your grass, which is all your food for your cattle. Yeah. And so it, it's now created this other dynamic, and our wintering herds here are negligible, if not zero. Yeah, I always thought that uh, the whole reference to the historical Yellowstone elk herd was, with in comparison to the wolf population, was interesting and kind of uh, hypocritical maybe because we were like, we had – what was it? 25,000 elk yeah. in the Yellowstone herd. And then the wolves came and, you know, 80% of them are gone. Well, they did rebound from that. So I think you had a lot of dumb elk that got wiped that out. Got real wiped quick. out. Yeah, because it was easy. Uh, I think the elk adapted. 
and maybe recovered to a more healthy absolutely overall number absolutely. maybe maybe the elk were overpopulated at 25,000 because we killed the wolves absolutely 100% so, it's it's a beautiful mosaic of predator prey dynamics out here and you live at ground zero of it absolutely and I, and i think you you hit the nail on the head in in the sense that you know in the late 80s early 90s the elk herds were at an all-time high across the entire park in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Like, say, you're talking 25,000 head that were migrating out of the northern portion of the park. And that's everything from Cook City to here. Yeah. And and so they were coming out into Montana in the wintertime. And, like, say, they'll turn the wolf loose. But that number was elevated as shit. There were, that, that's not a it was, sustainable number. It was hyper, number. hyperinflated at that point. Absolutely. And everybody think, was an outfitter. Like literally there were, I think there was at the, at the turn of night at 1990, I think there was a, over a hundred outfitters in the Gallatin Canyon. Sitting on the Northern border. Just everybody's sitting there just going, Park. let's shoot all these elk. And it was successful as hell. Everybody was yeah, shooting yeah. bulls. Everybody was having a great time. It was hunting was great, but the they ecological were, they were of grazing that. the absolute shit out of this landscape. Yeah, they were destroying, they destroying were eating, the willows, the, the riparian areas. The all, you know, they were just grazing too much, and they the herds really needed to be knocked down. Do you see that a lot of? I see a lot of parallels to that story to the buffalo herd today. Absolutely, I think the Yellowstone buffalo herd today is is far beyond objective. Absolutely, and that's another whole topic that we should probably do another whole podcast. Yeah, on. yeah, we can because it's it's that's it's too another. Much whole beast in and of itself that I think is an absolutely fascinating story. And, and again, we are stuck right in the middle of it yeah. here at this ranch in, in the most unique way. I mean, you could write, you could write books about that, about the, the uh, relationship between the agencies, the, the ecosystems coexisting next to each other, the pros and cons to it, the repercussions to management decisions, yeah. uh, and everything in between. Uh, but we brought the wolf back. We got a shitload of wolves today. We got a shitload of elk today. There's still elk out there. They, you know? Yeah, maybe maybe people don't agree with the latter part of that statement. But um, w- would you say the elk uh, in the last 20 years changed? Yeah. What, and, and not so much uh i mean numbers sure there there are less elk but i would i would argue like you were saying that it's at a more sustainable level that can perpetuate like i think 25,000 that's a that's an insane amount of of bodies and that's a lot of grass that they have to eat and the, the scientist in me is like yeah, that sounds like too much. That sounds the like hunter in me is like, God, I wish I was here. Man. Exactly, <laughs> like the bulls that were well, being taken that year. I wish you know, I like, could have been here. Uh, it is, and so you know, I think that's essentially where a lot of the resentment comes from. The wolf is that you had a lot of it changed that. It changed that, and again, any sort of change, it causes some people to be like, well, the good old days, the good old days, but. To me, in what I see, is that we have a more healthy ecosystem today hmm. than we did pre-wolf, and and what I mean is that, and maybe and again I I go back and forth on whether this is actually a product of the wolf or not, but I see more beaver 
I see more otter. I see more badger. I see more coyote. You think I things see are more just more fox. imbalance? I see more ducks. I really? see more geese. I see more like all of these critters that were here are here in better numbers than they were pre-wolf, and in a better diversity than there was. It's pre-wolf. interesting. It's it's hard for us uh, Montanans to like give the wolf any credit. Any credit, but maybe. Maybe but I, they I deserve it in the ecological uh, dimensions here. I mean, there, I, I I know there's a documentary out there about how the the yeah. wolves changed the water and the, they changed, they changed rivers. the rivers and all. The, and I know. understand that that pencils out like when you look at that at a very base level. Uh, I, I I can buy into that, and I could I can't too. Like now, do I? But I think they do. I buy into the little... the the music and the the dramatic video yeah. uh, the disney logo at the beginning really threw yeah. me off but i genuinely believe that we are at a healthier ecosystem with the wolf even though i don't necessarily you know it's, it's 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 an interesting dilemma that i go back and forth in my head as an outfitter and as a, a business owner and all of these things so like what where is evils yeah or where is the balance yeah and, and maybe maybe it's right here right now i mean uh I've always had a hard time. I've never once thought I had an opinion in it because I'm not from Montana. I grew up in Cincinnati. So I always was thought of myself as fortunate to be here as a white young man and got to hunt here, and that's great. And really on these big picture stuff, I probably shouldn't have a a stake in the – like I never assumed too much. Sure. Um and in doing so, I never had like a strong opinion of the wolf, but the easy opinion from that I adopted was just like, hey, they were here before me. They're going to be here after me. I'm not from here. They probably deserve to be like, I, I feel like they deserve just like the grizzly bear. I feel like they deserve a place. They deserve their, this is their home. They yeah. deserve a spot on the landscape. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't disagree. And I think the, you know, it's, again, my opinion is sort of irrelevant in the grand scheme of. Well, I don't um, think so. I think your opinion is wildly relevant. Wildly relevant. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. But I, I, I think the, the wolves have a place. I think the bears have a place. I think the otters have a place. And the, the elk and the deer and every other species. And if I've learned anything through my life, it's that nature is very much uh, uh just a melting pot of a lot of different factors so you got, and I, I always change it's always changing and evolving and 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 we as humans like to single it down to one factor yeah because that's how we study things and that's how we you know we got to test this variable on this and and whatnot but nothing in nature is just like if you Stag- take away the mes- mosquito like does that like you know or whatever you know it's like it's not just let me, let me f the mosquito okay <laughs> i feel like there's pretty sound science that says we don't need the mosquito but, i don't know i could again, argue the other way yeah, yeah yeah and again if we canceled the mosquito how much i bet all the, i bet within have? like five years we'd all be dead you know it's like how much repercussion would that actually have and and it's like it's not you can't just take things as singular 
like, oh, we'll just remove the wolf. Yeah. It's like, well, that that's it doesn't how it works. work like that. Like it's it's such a melting pot and a symbiotic, it's complicated, complicated equation thing. here. You know, it's like you know, to, like this year, like flowers are blooming really late. Cause all that water. Because we had a late cold spring. We had a lot of moisture. We had a lot. You know, it's like it's not one factor yeah. that affects those things. And so when you start playing God in a sense and say, I'm going to take that critter out of the system. I'm going to take that critter out. I'm going to let that critter go really positive and get a lot of population. I'm going to, you know, it, it, you start messing with the balance of things. Yeah, and there's probably unwanted repercussions from that. That you don't it's even, like, and a lot of times. Well, that's not what we were trying to do. And a lot of times it's unintentional. Yeah. You didn't even realize that you were causing this other issue. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 you know, humans like to, to grid things and singular things and, and make it square and even and perfect. Yeah, yeah. select it off into one thing. And it's thing. like nature's not like that. Nature no. doesn't do that at all. Like at where, all. Where do you see a straight line in nature? Yeah, where do you see a 90-degree turn in nature? You don't. No. It's, it's, it grows with the seasons and the, the – you know, it just – it changes. And it's so flow – flowing that it's it's hard to to put it down to one variable well i'm glad uh i'm glad you're in charge out here cameron because i think you have a really open-minded and uh productive outlook to the world you live in and the and the people you deal with and i think you're a great steward of the land and when we do delist grizzly bears you I'll be I, applying. You and I. Well, we're gonna be outfitting. Yeah, we're <laughs> gonna be applying hunts. for sure. Because <laughs> even if, like, say, even if they give six tags out, I'm gonna put my name in the hat. Not because I need to go kill the bear, just because I I want to say that I live in a country where we've we've brought this we did picture it. back. And, yeah, and it's a success story. It's a success story. Yeah, hundred percent. We should celebrate those things. It and the the Endangered Species Act was never intended to keep them on in perpetuity. Is that right? And, and and I think you. It was like a recovery. It was like it was rehab. a recovery go goal. And has that act done its job? In certain cases, yes. Mm-hmm. They're recovered. Let's get them off. Yeah, there was no exit plan. There was no exit plan. And like, and and so yeah, like like you've hit your objectives. You guys set objectives. Yeah. You hit them. You're far above them. Now what? Let's get them off. Yeah. That's a success. Let's celebrate that and not litigate it to death to the point that it's like, yeah. my God, you know. Nobody wins. And again, you know, I, and I, I could see the, the perception of the hunting, and I think honestly that is the big holdup on all of these these large carnivore issues. Because it looks the, – the trophy the hunting, like the, they're the able Cecil to sell the lion. it. They're able to package it up and sell it as this horrible – Horrible alternative. Atrocity. It's either going to be on the endangered species list or Cecil the Lion's going to get crucified twice on the news. And that's not the case. No. I mean, look at what that lion has done to Africa and the lion hunting. Terrible things. Terrible things. They are overpopulated and dying. It it, it brought so many things to a grinding halt. Uh, You know, poaching at an all-time high in areas that can no longer support an economically frugal uh, hunting camp, and, and and we again that's a whole other topic, the Africa thing. And but Africa is a, again an interesting you ever example. Been over there? I haven't, and I, I haven't love either. to go. Yeah, I'm love to go. Kind of itching, but I, I know, or I don't know a lot, but I, I I've researched it, and I under you know I try to 
understand where they're at and what they're doing. And, and I find it fascinating. That sounds like a big book to read. Oh, and again, you say, and like say, we're, we're so American. We're like, oh, Africa. And it's like, that's like what? 40 countries. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, it's like saying, oh yeah, North America over there. Sure. You know, it's, so it's a very broad topic, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for hanging out with me. Absolutely. We're going to circle the wagons. Uh, we'll talk some more on uh like say we got we got i got a host things i could talk about yeah i think if if, if anything this conversation just seeded uh uh, six more so thank you very much cameron we'll do it again i appreciate you more than you know appreciate it